Howdy. This is Vosh. You may know me from the YouTube channel, Vosh, where I livestream. Most of it's garbage, but sometimes the good bits get uploaded here. This is Previously Live. Hey, how are you doing? It's a delight to meet you as well. Um, to every To everyone who's watching, I mean, surely she needs no introduction, but hello, um, Marion Williamson, welcome. It's such a delight to talk to you. Thank you, thank you so much. How are you doing this fine day? Hold on, just making sure that my Zoom isn't glitching on me. <clears throat> and I think I made it happen, nice. Beautiful. There we go, all right, everything's set up on my end. Hey! <laughs> I love that uh, painting behind your head. Oh, thank you, it's a ballerina. Is it? Oh. <laughs> yeah. It's too abstract for Maybe. me to make out. But um, looks pretty either way. So I um I wanted to I wanted to get right to it. It's um it's a delight to be able to speak to you, especially after. Thank you. I mean, I've seen you uh in so many contexts. You know, after the the twenty twenty primaries, there was uh so many people. It seems like fell off, like completely disinterested in continuing to engage um in in political commentary. Uh, you know, apart obviously from like well, Biden became president. You know, Bernie Sanders, Warren. Um. A lot of people, it seems, stopped trying, but you, I've been seeing you do like interviews and calls and talks, like you've continued to engage. Um, why, why is that? Why have you been so consistent? Well, I remember when I dropped out of the race, uh, I wrote a letter to people who had supported my campaign and I made a commitment. I said, I promise that I will continue to try to champion the issues that I, I ran on. That's why I ran was to talk about those things. And I wasn't going to stop. You know, I didn't run for president expecting to win. So it was just a, a shift of platform. But I had hopefully had more of an opportunity to talk about those things. And I wasn't going to stop. I mean, I, I did. Um, it took me a year. I had some personal healing to do uh, after the experience because it was as brutal as it was exhilarating. But um once that was over and I felt more um, back to myself, I wasn't uh, prepared to shut up just because I that campaign was over. I'm delighted. And, and the things oh. that well, I was just going to say, the things that I talked about on that came on that campaign were things I've been writing books about for decades. Uh, I wrote a book called Healing the Soul of America in 1998. It was published talking about the corporatocracy, talking about racial injustice and reparations, talking about children, talking about wealth inequality. So this is not, I didn't just wake up one morning and say, oh, I think I'll talk about these things. Yeah, you you said you didn't run for president <laughs> expecting to win. Um, and that that and the conversation around it, it's actually one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you because um, this is actually kind of a follow-up. I saw a conversation you had maybe um, two weeks ago or so, one mm -hmm. that was, I think, largely unproductive um, for reasons which I don't think at all were your fault. And it was about the, um, the ability to get good work done through electoral means, even when you can't necessarily win. I was interested in maybe having a better version of that because I was really interested in what you had to say. What did you want to do through running? There is no platform like a presidential campaign. There is no other sort of vortex of conversation that is more um, on a certain level influential, but certainly ubiquitous. You know, everybody's involved, everybody hears you. So um, 
I felt in my gut. I felt in my heart. That's what I should do. You know, running for president, whether you are one of them, one of the machine, or you're not, is not easy. And you take a lot of slings and arrows and people are horrible to you. So it's not something you do for fun. Oh. You do it only if you think there's something serious that could be accomplished. Yeah, at least I would hope so. I'm sure there are plenty of people who come at it from the perspective of like a, a careerist, but obviously I don't think that's necessarily applicable for you. That's not, yeah, that's not my career. I'm not, I mean, that I'm not part of that political establishment, but I feel very strongly. And if anything, I feel it more strongly now than I even felt it then. Uh, the kind of energy that we need in order to disrupt the status quo, the economic status quo in this country, I don't think is going to come from that machine because that machine perpetrates that status quo. That machine is the status quo. And I realize that now more than ever. And that's why my passion for talking about these things, if anything, is greater now than it was then. I I love that because I remember um, back during the primaries. So I'm left-leaning. I'm, I'm a socialist. You know, I'm one of the unpleasable, never happy types, of course. And um, I, I've heard that about you. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad. If anything, I'm to be known by. It's I remember <clears throat> back when the primaries kicked off, you know, um, people were very cynical about the candidates lined up. And I remember there being this kind of uh, this wave of appreciation for you, even from people who are probably quite a bit to your left because of your apparent sincerity. I mean, I think that really distinguished you from a lot of the people there. You talk about the machine. What do you think distinguishes you from that abstractly? You know, I don't think in terms of those categories. I think every person is different. And I think that, I, you know, I don't think in terms of what distinguishes me. I only think in terms maybe because I'm a writer. I don't think in terms of what I have to say compared to what some other author has to say. I just think in terms of what do I, what in me wants to be said. You know, as a writer, I'm sort of guided by uh, Hemingway's comment that, once the story stops writing itself, put the put the pencil down. You know, you could read, you know, major books about major authors, and I never hear them referring to other authors. It's more about what in me wants to be said. And for me, in the, in the political sphere, it's what do I feel needs to be said in this country? And I feel that so many of the things that need to be said, although they're said by Bernie Sanders, um, are not said nearly enough within the halls of Congress or in the White House. And that's all I think about. I think about, well, not all I think about, but in terms of that question, I just think about, can I contribute to magnifying a conversation which is clearly suppressed in this country? And you see it not only in terms of presidential candidacies and how there's this suppression of the progressive voice, you see it in the congressional. You know, one of the things I was involved in last year was trying to endorsing and trying to magnify congressional candidates, progressive voices in, in congressional um, campaigns that were crushed by the same money, by the same forces. Um, I grew up in a time when those kinds of progressive voices were not crushed. As a matter of fact, I grew up in a time where they were major core pillars of the Democratic Party. You know, the, the Democratic Party elite now talks about progressives like we're trying to hijack the party. They hijacked the party. They're the DuPonts and the Morgans. We're Eleanor and Franklin. Franklin Roosevelt wouldn't even be allowed in today, be considered too fringe, too left. Well, I'm just not the type of person who's going to be quiet about that. I'm just you, not. You talk about um, suppression and these voices getting crushed. And I completely agree, by the way. I think it's interesting mm -hmm. how the Republicans... Um, despite their 
general politics are actually pretty receptive to in-party critique. You know, it's a very Isn't tumultuous environment. It is so odd. So the Democrats, for the most part, stand for the more egalitarian policies, but they have a more elitist relationship to their own constituency. The Republicans have the more elitist policies, but in a weird way, a more egalitarian relationship to its own constituency. It's... um. No, Republican politicians will bend over backwards if there's like a growing movement, a sentiment in their constituency, you know, whereas the Democrats, I mean, everyone, you know, every Democrat in Congress is 87 and they all like internally lock in their policies and just try to convince the constituency, it seems like, well, this is the only way forward. It's a it's a less democratic environment. And <laughs> it's which is which is weird because you'd think, I mean, it should be the other way, but I I don't know. You've been closer so, to that. How well, does it so work? First, well, first of all, if you if you talk about it in terms of the Republican, there's also a shadow side there too, because that has been so true that they have been open even to like Nazis talking or extreme right, you know, things that no no party theoretically should be open to. So there's the shadow side of that, just the sheer desire for power and and, and you know unwillingness to say no to things that should not be in their platform and should not be in their base. Among the Democrats, it's absolutely undemocratic. What Look at what they're doing right now, engineering the uh, primary so that no one but Joe Biden could possibly win the nomination. There's nothing democratic about that. It's very undemocratic. And it's also very disrespectful to the base. Over 20, over 60% of Democrats say they'd like to see someone else run. But no, the Democratic Party elite has said we're all lining up behind Joe Biden. It's like we've reverted to the time when a bunch of you know, old white men smoking their cigars in the back room would say, um, this is who's going to be the nominee. But it's more than who's going to be the nominee. It's worse than that. It's what's going to be our agenda. So they have a predetermined agenda. And anybody who has any other ideas to offer is, um, to the best ability, not allowed in. That's undemocratic. That's unacceptable. Absolutely unacceptable. Yeah, I remember during the primaries, the big kicker for Joe was the electability argument. He wasn't really argued mm -hmm. for on the basis <clears throat> of his confidence or charisma or any specific policy or expertise. It was just the idea that he was middle of the road enough that he could rope mm -hmm. in everyone, which is mm -hmm. not great politics. Um, I mean, we see a huge swell of support in the GOP for candidates who are incredibly divisive, even to their own people for a time until, you know, the, uh, the winds of change shift and the media becomes more, <clears throat> you know, um, amicable to them, at least on the right. Um, but over here, things seem a lot more stagnant. And I wanted to know, as somebody who's been closer to that than almost anybody, what does that suppression look like up, you know, when you're on stage? I mean, when you're participating in that primary? Well, first of all, I understand because I was there and I was up close and personal with it. I understand the nervousness that the primary voters felt. Uh, in this last election, we just want to defeat Trump. We just want to defeat Trump. So I understand some of that. In terms of my own personal experience of it, you know, like I would be on the debate stage, always just over on the, you know, on the side, not given as much time to speak. Chuck Todd looking at me in the most derisive <laughs> way if I open my mouth. You know, there was all, all that. But, you know, people have asked me about this. I've often said that the situation I did realized was the system was more corrupt than I even feared, but people were even more wonderful than I hoped. The voters are not the problem. 
The voters are not the problem. The consciousness of the American people is not the problem. You can look at issue after issue. The majority of Americans want universal health care. The majority of Americans want free college and technical school. The more, more, majority of Americans want uh, uh, a higher minimum wage. The majority of Americans want paid family leave. And people are waking up to the fact that such things as that, guaranteed living wage, the things that I just mentioned, are considered moderate positions in any other advanced democracy. So I think when you're up close and personal, what you realize is the gap between what people say they want and how the system operates, how the system is institutionally resistant. The whole point is to represent the people. That's the point of democracy. We're living at a time where the system is resistant to giving people, to expressing the will of the people if it doesn't um, align with their own basically financial interests in terms of the donor class. And we should not be quiet about that. No, certainly not. And we saw stuff like this really directly, I think, with like um, Florida uh, in the minimum wage, uh, a Kansas. Yeah, the, the people. Yes, yes, yes. Which by Florida, all logic, they voted for a higher minimum wage. You, you'd think they mm -hmm. would like write with the GOP party line. I mean, Florida's the the bedrock of modern American conservatism alongside Texas, but somehow it seems like the GOP is good at selling their constituents things that hurt them, and the Dems are bad at selling their constituents things that help them. And that is such an impossible, I mean, it's, I don't even know if it's just a, it, like incompetence or like deliberate incompetence, you know, like kind of strategic incompetence. Do you think that there's like, malice involved in that like there's an effort going on here to kind of handicap not only the progressive policies but even advocacy for for basic dem policies well first of all what you were just saying is interesting and true because i've read recently there are many issues where people say oh i like that issue oh no i hate the democrats but actually, right? They don't. <laughs> Me too. As long, as long as you sell them the exactly, as long as you sell them the issue without associating it with the Democratic Party, people are more open to it. So obviously, the Democratic Party has has failed. But I, I'm sure this is a. Uh, there are many aspects of answer to the question, but I think a large part of it is how disingenuous Democrats sound sometimes because they're afraid to say what they really think. If they said what they really thought. People go, notice how Republicans sometimes say the most awful things, but there's this congruity. <laughs> they really do have those awful thoughts and they really do say them. And people somehow like the fact that somebody just said what they thought. And Democrats, I remember in the 2020 election, somebody told me, oh, Marianne, you'd love, you would love Al Gore. If you knew him like off stage, he is so fabulous. And I remember saying, that's supposed to make me feel better that offstage, I really love him. Well, if I'd love him offstage, why isn't that the person he's showing on stage? Now, I also have more compassion also for the, for the, you know, some of the pressures involved there. But Democrats, like, like, you know, they become like pretzels and all gnarly, God forbid we say what we really mean. And that's, that's what has moved the Overton window so far to the right, because the Republicans just go further to the right, further to the right, and the Democratic elite, the Democratic establishment, is afraid to stand for what the Democratic Party core values theoretically were. Uh, certainly, the Roosevelt values of an unabashed support for the working people of the United States. Yeah. How can you say you support the working people of the United States and then uh, actually squash the desire of railroad workers just to get sick pay? 
How can you say you're a you're a, a labor president and do that? Mm-hmm. How no. can you say you're for helping the people and then let the child tax credit expire and don't even permanentize it? How can you say you're for the people? And then when the parliamentarian says we can't go for the uh, $15 an hour minimum wage, hide behind her. You, people hear that and they know how disingenuous you are and how hypocritical you are. And people don't like it. It crushed the rail unions. Then like right after the State of the Union, talk about unions being on the rise and him being a pro-union president. It's That's right. It feels like in a lot of way, Dems are caught up in like this, um, this, this kind of like lock and chain of bureaucracy where there's like a million little rules they've taught themselves to follow about proper political procedure meanwhile a lot of the gop are basically winging it or at the very least they're 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 holding themselves to a much um less restrictive standard of behavior and they come across a lot more authentic in that way yeah i mean sometimes somebody is authentically a jerk so that's not (laughs) something that we should respect yeah. (laughs) yeah we should not respect that but i do think and and unfortunately, we've gotten to the point where many Democrats actually, you know, I was talking about Democrats who don't say what they really think. Unfortunately, a lot of these Democrats actually are corporatists now. They really are. You know, even Bill Clinton said, I'm actually an Eisenhower Republican. He said that. When I heard the president last night, this is who, when I was young, that's how Republicans talked. Yeah, it feels like... Um... In, in a lot of ways, the Overton window moving to the right has given the Dems a lot more leeway in not updating their corporatist policies because not being, let's say, borderline genocidal on transgender people is now enough to vastly distinguish them from the Republicans. The bar is a lot lower now for being better than the GOP, so it, it feel like it gives them less of an impetus to try to impress their constituency with something big. Not that they seem to be that good at that anyway under really any circumstances. I don't think that's going to be enough in 2024. Just saying I'm not them. I'm not a misogynist like them. I'm not a racist like them. You know, I'm not an anti-Semite like them. I'm not a homophobe like them. That's not going to be enough in 2024. Okay. I think I agree with that. What do you, what should the selling point be? Do you think then what's the, what's the thrust of like a good candidacy then? You know, in AA, they talk about attraction, not promotion. So I'm not sure selling point um, is, uh, is, is the phrase that would come up for me, but I think that some truth telling needs to be spoken. And Americans are not stupid. Over the last 40 years, what there's been something like $50 trillion of transfer of wealth from the bottom 90% to the 1% and the unbelievable amount of human despair and unnecessary human suffering that this has created. And it has taken the ship, you know, this unfettered, un- unregulated form of capitalism has just has devastated the fabric of our society. And at this point, the ship is listing so far to the right that just to bring it into any level of, of normal, uh, fair playing field for the American people, we need universal health care. We need universal education. We need a, a guaranteed live, uh, living wage. We need uh, free child care. We need paid family leave. We need those things which they think are like too leftist to talk about. I think we need to admit the fact that, as FDR said, we must become fairly radical for a generation. And as I said, those issues that I just described are considered moderate in any other advanced democracy. So whether it's the selling point or not, to me, it's the truth. So if I were to run, those are the things I would be talking about. No, you know, I'm sorry. Oh, no, no, please go ahead. 
Well, you know, it's funny that in his speech last night, he said, I came here to fundamentally change things. Well, that was kind of weird because he ran saying he wasn't going to. But the point is, he hasn't. And he's done, you know, I want to give the president credit where credit is due and so forth. But one of the things that FDR talked about was, and I I love the book, No Ordinary Time by uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin about Franklin and Eleanor during World War II and before. And she came to him and she said, the alleviation of stress is not enough. We need fundamental economic reform. And that's what I think uh, the Democratic Party should stand for at this point. Yeah, it seems like the response from the Dems is that a a time of increasing right radicalism should be met with more left moderation, that there's this, this, this push that's and pull crazy. where they have to be the stabilizing force. But it seems like the opposite is the case, right? I mean, like 2000, yeah, 2016 was when Trump mm-hmm. came to power, but it was also when Bernie not nearly, but, you know, put up a good shot against Hillary. And in 2020, you know, again, they run with Biden and Hillary are both moderate candidates. Biden beats Trump, but like, come on, it should have been a blowout. And it wasn't. Mm-hmm. Um, they're they're allergic to real change. And I wonder how much of that is like malice, like, ah, we can't let him go that far. And how much of that is like self-delusion, you know, like. No, it's neither. It's not malice. It's not self-delusion. It's corruption. It's corruption. The system is corrupt. The undue financial influence of huge corporate entities and the billionaire class on our on our um, Congress. So the, you've got the Republican Party completely sewn up, and the Democrats try to have it both ways. They try to to make people's lives better so they can survive. You know, we're going to give you this. We're going to give you that. This crumb's going to be bigger than that crumb. We might even give you a cookie. But they refuse to challenge the underlying forces that make the return of all that suffering inevitable. Why? Because those forces represent the corporate money that they too are taking. That's why. It's just corruption. Let's not make it any more complicated than it is. No, it it reminds uh, me almost kind of like... um the movie stereotype of like a, a crime syndicate almost, not in terms of the criminality itself, but rather this this wearied, this is how it works. You have problems and inequalities, corruption, embezzlement, you have just a, a mess of a system, but people defend it, not because they like it, but because they think this rickety, totally unnecessary superstructure is actually the only way you can get by. And it takes like a- To beat the, the guys who are even worse. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, hey, this is bad, but at least we keep this out, you know? And it takes a radical and, to knock that aside and go, no, we can build something up from the ground a little bit better than this, at least. Thank you. And that's why I think Bernie would have won in 2016. But it was the Democratic Party, it was the, you know, the DNC who suppressed that. And 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 I once again, I think he would have won. So the, you, the only way to beat a big lie, which is really what the Republicans today represent, the only way to defeat a big lie is with big truth. But it can't be just kind of sort of truth. It has to be the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And the Democratic establishment doesn't want us talking the truth, the whole truth, and, and nothing but the truth, because that busts them too. Uh, Lula da Silva, recently with his presidential win in Brazil, um, mm-hmm. You know, uh, 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 Bolsonaro is, is a fascist, or at least certainly fascist leaning. And mm-hmm. it seems, despite his incredible popularity in the government and in very powerful, like, corporate sectors, um, it took, like, left populism to oust that. And in a way that I don't think any kind of liberal moderation could have succeeded. I totally agree with that. I totally agree with that. And also, I'm old enough to remember when people said, um, Ronald Reagan would never be president because he was too conservative. 
you know, people who think they know what would win. No, what's going to win now is some radical truth telling. But neither party, I mean, look, I, I'm not trying to excuse the Republicans at all. I think the Republicans represent a nosedive for our democracy, but I think the Democrats represent a managed decline. And we've got to interrupt that status quo. We just have to, or it, it could become too late. We're really six inches from the edge now. I fully agree. And, and this is why you defend electoral action on the soapbox provided to you by by running in the Democrat. I mean, that's what Bernie did in 2016, right? Is if he'd run right. as an independent, he would have, you know, spoken in 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 concert halls and and auditoriums with 90 seats in them. You know, by running on the DNC platform, you get so much more of a um uh even if you don't win, you know, you you get the potential. <laughs> I'm seeing that already. You know, as I've said, you know, the point is to inconvenience those people who deserve to be inconvenienced. And I've had fun the last couple of weeks seeing that I'm inconveniencing a few people already. It only makes me think the decision is even is even smarter than I might have known. Um, because nobody's supposed to nobody's supposed to challenge the way it's going down. And then somebody does and they get all like rattled. Well, do you think that sincerity? Um do, do you think, okay, hmm. so I fully agree with, uh, we, the, the two parties are like a corporate duopoly and, and they both have mm -hmm. similar priorities in terms of the general thrust of their economic policy and things are diverging very rapidly in a lot of social issues, but there's, there's like a core there that's centered. A common mm -hmm. socialist critique is that the reason the right accepts populism, but the, the Democrats cannot is because right populism doesn't challenge capital. Privatization as a term was invented to describe the policies of Hitler's okay. Germany. But left populism does because they absolutely don't like corporate profit. Given that apparent conflict of interest, do you think real change can happen through the DNC, like at all? Well, hold on. There's a, there's a distinct difference between can change happen within the DNC versus can change happen despite the DNC. Mm -hmm. The question can, can change happen running as a Democrat to me is a different question than can it happen within the DNC? No, it can't happen within the DNC. Um, it has to be an overriding of the power of the DNC. Um, could that happen? Well, it would take a miracle, but we've had them in American history. Uh, there was a time when no one would have thought that abolition was possible. No one would have thought women's suffrage was possible. No one would have thought that dismantling segregation was possible. Or, or Bernie um, Sanders, right? Like, I remember what Bernie a huge Sanders. influence and he, he did, had. Exactly. And he did come within striking distance of the presidency. And that would not have happened, I don't think, had he um, not chosen at that beginning to go uh, through the Democratic Party. I know for myself, it would be it would be so much easier to invisibilize my candidacy if I were to run, if I do run, uh, as a um, third party. Which is not to say, by the way, that running third party is a, is an invalid or illegitimate or mis, you know mistaken thing to do. People should do what they feel moved to do. But I think sitting out the electoral process entirely is just an acquiescence to the system as it is. That's not going to make anybody change. Yeah, I, I, I noticed this tendency, especially from a lot of other people on the left, the idea that there's some kind of moral corruption that takes place when you engage with inequitable or corrupt systems. Unfortunately, it seems like all systems, to some extent, are are, are yeah, captured yeah. in that sense. Which means it's, exactly. it seems like total, you know, like the ultimate left advocates, uh, advocacy might be like sitting in your basement and just like meditating for eighteen hours a day and just hoping that everything changes around you. <laughs> the left has its own brand of holier than thou. 
Oh, God, yeah. Oh, God, yes. All the time, everywhere. You have to agree with me about every little thing or you're a bad person. This is not the way to build power. This is not the way to build a movement. I think I saw... I thought it was... Oh, no, please, go ahead. No, I just thought it was really interesting what you were saying before about left-wing populism versus right-wing populism. And I had never heard that thought, but you're absolutely right. Right Right-wing populism actually supports right-wing social and ideological authoritarianism. Left-wing populism challenges economic authoritarianism. Which seems like it makes it a really tough sell, right? Because you have to break out of the mold that- That's why I said get- You work in. Get out. We've got to just don't even put sell in your mind. You know, you're dead when you start thinking about what would sell. You know, Martin Luther King said, your life begins to end on the day you stop talking about things that matter. If you're only trying to be popular or to get votes, this is how I look at it. Social change, everybody, not everybody, but a lot of people seem to think social change only happens on the horizontal axis. So that means you're always trying to figure out what to say to sell what you're trying to get across. And so you're constantly dumbing down your message because you think it's necessary to do that in order to get uh, in order to get more people to vote for you. Real social change doesn't happen on the on the horizontal axis. Real social change happens on the vertical axis. That you don't think in terms of how can I say it so more people agree with me? You just uh, say, have the conviction to say what you believe. And that conviction is a force multiplier. And if other people are sort of almosting it, then that's how you form a movement. You know, a lot of people on the left are tied to this idea, very, a very old-fashioned notion of movement building. It's based on this old-fashioned organizing, all of which is true. I'm not minimizing that. But Donald Trump didn't build a movement that way. He built a movement by hitting a nerve. And if we hit the nerve, which is the truth in our hearts, and that we have an instinctive understanding that this is not what America is supposed to be, that's a way of movement building as well, speaking the real truth that needs to be said. And to me, that was the power of Bernie Sanders. So, no, I, I agree with that completely. I'm a big fan of the uh, the Black Panther Party. You know, the, the movement's so dangerous, the feds had to kill it. And um, I, uh, it, it, you know, I think a lot of people learned the wrong lessons from what they did. Fred Hampton, right, killed uh, very early in his <laughs> life. Um, and... You, you take a look at what he did that was so threatening, something that necessitated that political action. And a lot of it, if applied today, wouldn't really mean much of anything. You know, the Black Panther Party's tendencies of having folks with guns stand outside courthouses or people in cars follow police, this wouldn't, at least not right now in this environment, that would maybe not get as much good done as bad. But sincerity, um, radical coalition building, reaching out across economic and racial lines with a, with a shared cause, that was the dangerous bit. And any kind of like you said the left has its own holier than thou it seems like that look more insular purity testing is really destructive you have to be able to reach out to like people in the midwest you have to be able to reach out to um you know i don't know coal miners in, in appalachia you have to be able to reach out to everyone at least with something that might resonate with them and if that kansas provision on abortion could fail and minimum wage could be raised in Florida, they will listen, right? I mean, if you can find the right way to get it across to them. Uh, People don't like to be condescended to. People don't like to feel patronized. And I think a lot of people in this country feel very patronized and condescended to, not only by the corporatist Democrats, but also by the left. 
You know, I always say in my work, when people ask, what's the message you're trying to get out? I always say, I'm not trying to get a message out. I'm trying to get a message in. I think we need to think less in terms of getting a message out and more getting a message in. How deeply can am I, how deeply educated am I about this issue? How deeply can I articulate? How well can I articulate this issue? How sincere am I? How aligned it is with my personhood, the qualities of my character? That right there. That is a magnetic force. You don't have, you know, the masculine aspect is dynamic. The feminine is magnetic. It's not just about going out. It's about living it so fully that people are drawn to it. It, it seems like the distinction between activist and politician in a lot of ways, where it's, it's thought that they have two like complementary um, but very distinct roles. And you're, you're arguing essentially that like the, the, the activist role, you know, has been captured and integrated by the GOP, at least to some extent, with their uh, it, uh, at least um, seeming sincerity, you know, but the Dems are locked into the politician mindset. Everything has to be means tested. Everything has to be like rote and, and down by a million little procedures. And you want like the messiness, right? You, you want more personality, more <clears throat> fervor. You know, I've read a lot about uh, Franklin Roosevelt and about Lincoln, and they both had a, an exquisite sensitivity to where people were, where their constituency was. When you look at, even though Lincoln said, I was always against slavery. In fact, he made an incredible line early in his career. He said, if I ever have a chance to hit it, I'm going to hit it hard. But he was not a provocateur. There were provocateurs about abolition. There were the John Brown types. There were the people who were just uh, on and on and on about slavery very early when Lincoln was still being pretty quiet about it. And even then, he, he was pretty pro-compromise for a long time, and he had his own issues. But when he got there, he got there. So, yeah, and he would not have been able to get there, I don't think. And he couldn't have taken people with him if he had been the provocateur. So you're right, everybody has their own lane. So sometimes an activist just being so out there with it, that that's a lane that is very um, valid and legitimate. But I think the politician does have a different role in the sense, not of the game playing and the power game playing that you were describing that you see in the political parties, the major political parties, but in the sense of knowing, hey, I'm trying to convince somebody here if it's okay with you. You know, I remember reading, I think it was a Neil Postman book, I'm not sure, but where it said, with your vision, you must never compromise, but politics is compromise. So I think we have to respect that some people are saying, it's not that I don't agree with you, but the role I'm playing is taking people along. Those are both very valid positions and very valid roles. Yeah, it's it seems like, if nothing else, the the two have to get along, which is definitely what we're lacking right now on on the left. On the left, and you're right because on the right they get, hey, we're all on the same team. On the left, it's just them well, to it's, actively it's not... ignore and ostracize, like the more activists, even even the ones who are like politicians or or, or in that sphere, like Nina Turner, for example, right? They'll like mm -hmm. actively cut them out of the discussion in ways that I just don't see. I mean, remember the um. Oh man, uh, like in 2013, they were like pretending to be libertarians for the Republicans. What were they? Mm -hmm. The um, something caucus? Uh, the... Tea Party. Uh, tea, tea Party, party. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, they got roped in. They were just a bunch mm -hmm. of rabble rousers to begin with. They got completely co-opted and then there, it just became standard ideology. I really wish we could see well, some of that. Also, the irony is and the injustice of it is that they wouldn't, the Democrats would not have won without this base. 
would not have won in, in, in 2020 and would not have won in 2022 without the very people that it spends every other hour putting down, suppressing, mocking, making fun of. I mean, look at look Hakeem Jeffries voting for that quote unquote anti-socialism uh, resolution. That is so outrageous. A lot of the people who are the most offended by that, he will be coming to saying, you got to vote for us because we're so much better than the other guys. It's pathetic. And not, leaving aside the whole like joining fascists and denouncing socialism thing, but the idea that there are any like unconvinced moderates that could be brought over to the Democrats by denouncing socialism is ridiculous. The only people in America who care about denouncing socialism is the right, and they are firmly captured, at least at the very least, they won't be swayed by something like that, you know. It's the most, it's 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 a ridiculous virtue signal for the benefit of literally nobody except the GOP. Nobody. And yet, Hakeem Jeffries, my 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 man, you know, my uh, bipartisanship <laughs> guy. Yeah, I, oh man, it gets me angry just to think about it. It's, it's crazy how bad just the strategy is, too, let alone the sincerity and the, the values, just even pure it's strategy. Wrong, it's immoral and it's stupid. Yeah. <laughs> and it's stupid on top of everything else. On every level, um, yeah. So okay. So I, I wanted I wanted to ask then. I'm I'm really glad we agree on this because it seems like the attitude a lot of left leaning people have is one of like um, pre preemptive denunciation of any kind of electoral action. You know, you can never fail if you don't try. And obviously, we do have to try in an environment like that. You know, like say you became I don't know. Say you swapped souls with people to judge. I'm sorry. And you were Department Maybe, of Trans I'm sorry, go back a little bit. Wait, let's say I what? Oh, swapped souls with Pete Buttigieg or something, you know, and then I <laughs> apologize. Souls for, with just, Pete I don't, say you're head of Department of Transportation, oh, right? You know, you're you're in. You're you're in the cabinet. How much do you think can be done from from within there in, in an environment like that? You know? Well, look, Bernie Sanders and Rokana came up with a plan for dealing with Southwest Airlines. It was called them having to pay a fine for what they were doing. Pete Buttigieg wouldn't do it. <laughs> and I'm sure Pete Buttigieg, I mean, the whole thing of the railroad workers was, God forbid, that we, you know, that we make the trains go a little slower rather than showing up for the people. Don't kid yourself, though. These, these positions do have power. There are levers of power there. But, you know, when Steve Bannon said, we are in there, we are going in there to dismantle the administrative state, he meant it. If you read a book called The Fifth Risk by Michael Lewis, they were, it's unbelievable, that book is great. I don't know if you've ever read it or had him on, but they went in there to completely disempower the function of government, of course, so that all power could be put in the hands of corporatists, that, of corporations, that's what makes them, that's what fascism is, right? But the Democrats, so the, the Republicans get power and they overreach and they use it in ways that are a complete beyond the constitutional power uh, that they were mandated, Republicans get in there and they're afraid to use it. What's the point of being the Secretary of Transportation unless you're going to stick it to Southwest Airlines when they're sticking it to people? Hello. Should be pretty elementary. Yeah, it seems like but it's not to it's, Pete because Pete wants to play along with the Democratic establishment because he wants to be president in 2028. Oh, I'm sure. Oh, I'm sure he thinks about it every day. Um, yeah, it really does seem like they're terrified of the power. Like, for instance, the idea that the, the parliamentarian would ever stop any Republican initiative is laughable. They fire her. They would fire the parliamentarian before they let that happen, which is what they did a few years ago. It, with with the no hesitation. The parliamentarian has no power. No controversy. And then they expect people to trust them. And people like that, too. If I was a Republican, you know, <laughs> thank God that I'm not, but if, if I was, 
I would be heartened by the, uh, the apparent like will and, and power demonstrated by people who appear to share the values that I have. All I see, even from moderate liberals, I mean, even from middle of the road people, is a kind of resigned, well, what can you expect them to do? You know, well, well, what do you think? Oh, they do? I don't know. He's the president of the United States. I'm sure there's something uh -huh. he can figure That's exactly out. Exactly right. Have a spine, have a core. What did FDR say? I welcome their hatred. Do you, That's what FDR said. In a lot Let of, them hate you. There's don't, this, don't go into office unless you're willing to take that on. Yeah, and there's this effort. Um, I mean, like Michelle Obama said it, right? Like, they go low, we go high, we take the high road, uh, of almost taking pride in abstainiousness. Like, we will make not doing something our party identity because it represents some kind of virtue or, or moral purity on our part, which seems to me almost like I mean, borderline suicidal in a political environment like this. I, I, and, and some liberals go along with it too, right? The idea that Biden is better for not exercising his power. Like that's some kind of testament to him as, as, a, as a leader, you know? I don't know what to make First of that. First of all, I don't think that's how Michelle Obama meant it though. I think she was coming from a really kind of beautiful place at the moment, because I think it had an almost spiritual quality about the mean-spiritedness versus not. But in terms of your description of how the Democrats have gone, I think the main point is it won't continue working. The fact that the Democratic Party has so conspired, has so acquiesced with the Republicans in that undertow, the right-wing undertow, it's not going to work. And one of the reasons it won't continue working is for what you just said. It's like a soft underbelly. Do you guys have a spine? We gave you the House. We gave you the Senate. We gave you the White House. What more do you want? And you're still coming up with excuses for why you're not doing what theoretically you say you stand for? Do you think it'll change? Somebody changes it. How much time do we have, though, realistically? I mean, I don't want to be defeatist. That's, I right think now, that's but... the point. That's the point. We don't have time. When I hear all these lefties say, well, let's just sit this out and we'll come back strong after all this movement building for 2028. My fear is the authoritarian takeover. I think people are closer to the, to the gates of the Bastille than we have any idea. So we have two forms of authoritarian threat. One is the authoritarian threat, that's the ideological authoritarian threat, the, um, threat, the almost Viktor Orban threat, the DeSantis telling colleges what they can study, telling librarians they have to, you know, take uh, classic American classics off the government uh, off the shelves. Yeah. Uh, the Supreme Court telling women what we can do with our bodies. That's the that's the assault on democracy from the outside. But there's an authoritarian assault from the inside, which is just as pernicious, and that is the authoritarian. Uh, authoritarian, authoritarianism that is represented by plutocracy, that is represented by corporate power dictating to our government the way it does. You can't have a plutocracy and a democracy. So to whatever extent the Democratic Party is playing footsies under the table with the oligarchy, they're not standing up for democracy either. And that's why it's not going to come from, from in there. It's going to come from from all of us coming in there and cutting the cord to that uh, from uh, uh, probably from the outside. I just don't see any other way. Because when you see the people who agree with me saying, oh yes, oh yes, Nancy, oh yes, Hakeem, and going along because I guess this is how we're gonna strategize it and we'll get there later. And you know, maybe they still believe we'll get there later or maybe they believe, well, maybe we won't get there but my career will get there. The American people, these are revolutionary times. So it's either going to be positive 
revolutionary change or there's going to be violent negative revolutionary change. Uh, John F. Kennedy said, those who make peaceful revolution impossible make violent revolution inevitable. There's too much unnecessary human suffering in this country. And too many people feel we tried it with both of them and no one's helping me. And this is such a prescription for chaos beyond anything that we see now. So no, I don't think we have time. I think the time for us to get in there and say we need radical change, radical meaning of the core, genuine fundamental economic reform. We need to provide universal health care, universal cost. We just need to come in there, not incremental change, not this tweaking around the edges, but genuine reform. And I think we need to do it now. No, I, or at least offer it to the people. I completely agree. And I like what you say too about there being two kinds of authoritarianism on offer here, mm -hmm. because all of the conditions that have set in place what we're dealing with right now with, with DeSantis and the GOP and the uh, inflation mm -hmm. and all of it, it, it has mm -hmm. to do with corporate control, ultimately. Um, our over-dependence and just complete economic subservience to oil, gas, and coal, um, to the fact that our social media companies are run with essentially no oversight by a small handful of billionaires. Um, everything, ev all the, the superstructures are laid in ways that make it really easy for all of this to happen. It all, it's, and, and it's all predicated, I think, on a lot of ways and Democrats just letting that be, you know? It's like it's, well, you set all the conditions and in, invariably now things are quite difficult to resist now that we're facing a kind of active political threat when it comes to authoritarianism. But once again, it's it's an economic authoritarianism, the fact that we don't have universal health care because of the insurance companies, that we don't have free insulin or very affordable insulin for everyone because of the dictatorial authoritarianism of the of the um, pharmaceutical companies, mm -hmm. the dictatorial authoritarianism of the NRA, the dictatorial authoritarianism of big oil. We're killing ourselves. We're on a collision course with ourselves. And we continue with this fossil fuel extraction. I'm sorry, the president has given more permits for fossil fuel extraction than Trump did. So the Democrats are playing this sleight of hand. On one hand, yes, the Inflation Reduction Act, we have, you know, we have more um, money given for investments in green energy, all of which is good. On the other hand, giving a permit for an $8 billion infrastructure plan in Alaska. So um, that's authoritarianism. The fact that the, the will of the people is stymied. This is not of the, of the people, by the people, for the people. This is of the corporations, by the corporations, and for the corporations. And that's its own kind of authoritarianism. And it's the, it's the innate flaw of moderation, right? I mean, take, for example, like immigration. You know, red and blue, they differ on how to treat issues at the border. But fundamentally, I mean, not by that much. Joe was bragging about how much, you know, how he was clamping down on the border and, you know, sending people back and so on. If you teach people in your base, if you politically normalize a moderately authoritarian approach on border issues and immigration, you know, it's not at all surprising that a fully authoritarian approach on border issues would itself be normalized following that. Um, you, you can never just hold your place when the threat is sliding downhill. If, if, you, if you're tumbling down a hill, you don't just stop moving like abruptly and stay there. You want to climb back up. And in the absence of climbing, you're only waiting for another, uh, you know, another accident to kick you further down, it seems. And unfortunately, that applies not only to immigration, it applies to everything. The inertia means the tendency of the object to move in whatever direction it's been moving. So if we're going to disrupt the corruption, there has to be the introduction of a counterforce. 
because they're both either perpetrators of it overtly, like the Republicans, or acquiescing too many times and in too many ways, like the Democrats. Do you think there's any hope in 2024 for a candidate we can believe in? Yeah, I do. It's, um, I don't feel like we've been given much in the way of options outside of, uh, of Biden at the moment. I mean, uh, Bernie Sanders has, uh, I, I assume, very tiredly said to somebody with the microphone that he might be willing to run, but I don't, he's, he should, well, I think he should rest. No, he, he's, I don't think he's planning to rest. He's going to be the chairman of the help uh, committee. And, uh, you know, if you see, you know, he's out there. He's going to take on corporate greed, take on the pharmaceutical companies. He was tweeting today about the fact that, you know, um, five companies, there are people in this. We have 68,000 people in this country who die every year because of lack of health care. We have 85 million people who are underinsured or uninsured. We have 500,000 people a year who go into medical debt. Bernie's out there talking about those things. Uh, Bernie was talking in his tweet today about the fact that uh, last year alone, the, the top five, um, the, the top five uh, uh, insurance companies. I think he said they made sixty billion. Probably a large sure. number. I, a, I'll a trust large, a large yeah, number. It's no, he's out there. I, I think I don't. I don't countenance any criticizing of him. I mean, oh no, I would it. never. My my, he's worked <laughs> yeah. he's worked enough for three lifetimes. You know, uh, if, no, but if, he but he's still out there, and he's really into it with the help <laughs> committee, et cetera. I mean, the Democrats are in charge of of um uh, of the Senate, so yeah, we have Even that if at he's least. He's the lone voice. It's um, it's just. Yeah, I mean, we were talking earlier about a more democratic culture for internal dissent in the GOP. And I mean, right now, I think just yesterday, Trump called Ron DeSantis a groomer over some leaked photos of him providing alcohol to students back when he was a teacher or something. So their primaries are going to be an active process. I can say that much. It's going to be great news. Um, over on the Dems, Did though. You... Oh, no, go ahead, please. Did you see Trump's tweets about biden during the state of the union last night no i didn't oh he was saying things like jill's dress is so pretty and he was he was saying all these complimentary things about, i know it was like what just happened he took some yeah, quaaludes maybe was having a pleasant <laughs> evening who knows he's a. Uh, i don't know well, his his brain has been pretty soup like for a while now so i you know it's <laughs> Whatever the case is, I mean, it seems like the GOP really wants to front DeSantis because he's a little bit easier to control. Um, he's doing great work in Florida, I think, depending on your definition of great work. He's doing something in Florida. Um, and yeah, I guess Biden? I mean, I don't know. Do you, uh, you know, do, would you even consider running again after all the work it put oh. you through? Oh, I'm absolutely considering it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as Stay it, tuned. as it stands, maybe it'll somebody just be you and quite, Biden up there. Somebody's got to. Somebody's got to. No. If it was you and Biden, I would I know where I'd be casting my vote. I can say that much. Thank you. I, um, Thank you. I did very much enjoy seeing you up there before. <clears throat> I'm sure it caused you an ungodly amount of stress to have to deal with all that, but still. Um in, in an environment I've, filled with so much insincerity, too. Uh I would say 50-50, brutal and exhilarating. 
It is brutal. It is. You wake up every morning and somebody's lying about you. Somebody's smearing you. Somebody's mischaracterizing you. Somebody's it's it's rough. And also for me, I think a large part of that was how many of the criticisms and the smears were coming from people that agree that I agree with and that agree with me about politics. But I saw that they were so hooked into the system that they weren't even intellectually honest enough to to listen to what I had to say. Yeah, it do was you think- a lot about. Th- yeah, I'm sorry. No, maybe to them, sincerity comes across as kind of threatening. I, I saw a lot of people you know, compare- There was a lot of fairy dust. Oh, for sure. There were people comparing, I remember back in 2016, Bernie and <clears> Trump, <throat> because both of them were like passionate old guys who shouted, you know, which I don't have a problem with passionate old guys shouting. It's been known to happen. You know, it's what they're shouting about. And, and I think, I don't know, a lot of people are just very used to, like, I don't know, people like Hillary or Biden, where it seems like they don't cough without running it by an advisory board first and getting it, you know, um, PR tested. It, it, it's just what they're accustomed to. Yeah. Well, I think also there's so much monitoring of other people's mannerisms. And uh, I don't know if the if the right does that as much with their with each other as the left does. I mean, you you not only have to say what I want you to say, you have to say it the way I want you to say it, with the words I want you to use, and with the outlook I want you to have. And we we're, we have our own little authoritarians in our heads, you know? All yeah. of us need to get rid of the in, inner authoritarian. No, I, I agree. We are, in that respect, captured. <clears throat> it makes me wonder how mm-hmm. effective like a, a lot of people who are today left activists would have been sir, uh, during like the civil rights movement. You know, like what what would their thoughts have been on them? You know, would, would they have understood the, the meaning of the times and contributed in a positive way or would they have been critical and absent? <laughs> I'm not sure. Well, Martin Luther King insisted on the principles of nonviolence. He said, for instance, you have very little morally persuasive power with people who can feel your underlying contempt. So he made it clear that that the core principle of nonviolence was the refusal to personally demonize. So there's a lot of lack of emotional discipline among all Americans right now. But I do think that on the left, we need more emotional discipline as well as intellectual discipline. Don't so easily slap at other people. You know, social media has done this to us. And um, that's not the space... uh, in which the kind of revolution we want to see happen, a cultural revolution, a loving revolution, a conscious revolution of justice, that's not going to happen from that space of mean-spiritedness. It's just not going to happen. It's too low level. The energy doesn't make for greater possibility. It just doesn't. No, I completely understand. I um, I do a lot of debates in this channel, and I've said a lot of um, argumentative things to other people. But when I started the channel, it was predicated on the idea that, you know, no matter how heinous a person's belief structures are, now they can be reached to everyone can or at least almost everyone and if they were to change they would no longer be deserving of any kind of contempt and for that reason you should always treat a person as like a hopeful right like a prospective ally um even if at the moment you know circumstances has driven a wedge between the two of you there's like an underlying thing there that that should be maintained at least conceptually that is so, a friend of mine said to me, I was at dinner with some people, I was in Florida, and somebody was saying some stuff, and it made me get pretty reactive. And my friend said to me, the way I look at, and I said to him later, I said, you were so calm. I was really impressed by how calm and together you were when they were saying all that MAGA stuff, you know. And he said what you just said. He said, the way I look at it is if somebody doesn't see a certain something, 
maybe they will at some point. But if I get reactive now, or the Martin Luther King, show my underlying contempt, um, it's all about moral persuasion. Otherwise, all you're doing is talking to the talking to the choir. All you're doing is getting applause from people who already agree with you in this ever shrinking silo. This is not the way to build a movement. This is not the way to, you know, people say we got to organize. Well, that's not the way to do it uh, because it's a way to um, to deflect rather than to attract uh, deep alliances and agreements. Yeah. And it spares you a lot of effort too, because if you come at people who you would want to be on your side, but you approach them with a lot of hatred and sort of innate disgust, um, you spare yourself the effort because they'll never come over to you anyway, right? Like Dr. King said, uh, it, it, you see this all the time with like Midwestern or Southern conservatives as well, because underlying a lot of the reactionary beliefs is this deep-seated insecurity that they're being looked down on by New Yorkers or uh, Los Angeles or whoever else has their finger on the pulse of modern American culture, that they're somehow lesser than. And obviously that's not true. We are where we are. But I think that even the fact that that, that, that fear, that belief could motivate in them some kind of insecurity, that means something. My fear, not my fear, my belief is different than yours. You said, obviously that's not true. I think the problem is that obviously it is true. There is a lot of arrogance and condescension. You know, I come from Texas. I don't come from, you know, the coasts. I've spent most of my adult life, uh, Los Angeles, New York, Michigan. But there, there is a lot of arrogance. Well, I grew up in Los Angeles, so I can say um, I did spend a good amount of my, my youth getting talked down to by other Los Angeleans, so I can okay. attest to that at least. <laughs> yeah. Sort of ubiquitous contempt generated so just from imagine city. if you come from the Midwest. <laughs> yeah, just yee-hawing at a Los Angelian and getting a rock thrown right. at your car. Um, yeah. I, I think it has been an absolute delight to have you on. Um, oh, thank you thank very you. much. Thank you. Thank you for having me on, and uh, nice meeting you. Yeah, it's nice to meet you too. Uh, whatever your decisions in the future, 2024 um, and beyond, I, I wish you all the luck in the world. And um, thank you. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you. All my best to you. Bye-bye. Be well. Oh, I'd say that went pretty well. How'd you score that one again? Yeah, we'll talk. <laughs> actually, no. Um, that, was, that was a referral from um, Kyle Kalinske. It's actually kind of a wild coincidence. See, I, was, I said I was going to email... Marianne, and then Tempest drafted me an email, and then right as Tempest emailed me the email, Kyle Kalinske DM'd me and offered to, uh, took me up there. And I was, I, I haven't told Tempest yet that it wasn't his email, so he still thinks that, so don't tell him, because I appreciate the email he sent me. But yes, thank you, Kyle. Um, yeah, no, that was a, <laughs> that was a good conversation. Um, I actually, man, um, I feel I feel like she has a better grasp on on political theory than almost anyone I've talked to. Tempest, if it wasn't you pushing me to get your email sent to her, I probably wouldn't have like accepted Kyle's thing either. Okay, you absolutely helped, one hundred percent. You two were vibing so good together; it was very nice to watch. That feels like an appropriate term. Also, hey, Lumi, she got slandered as an orb lady, um, but it's okay. She's lifting the orb people with her. Yeah, I feel like um. I feel like I feel like her understanding of political theory is is pretty great actually because a lot of her a lot of her criticisms are like fundamentally the same as mine right hers are phrased more from like the social democrat um uh, uh like like a, a Roosevelt perspective more so than 
the socialist like critical theory perspective but it's like the same like fundamentally it's like the same set of criticisms what is this about orbs uh, she's she's like hippie meditation woo stuff so people say orb lady i don't know much about it what is orb other than something to ponder wait do you guys know do you guys not know the the orb mother stuff it was it was basically just a set of memes that here inside marianne williamson's very weird orb gang she's a spiritualist um and a, a lot of people during the 2020 race who liked her and also some who didn't like her it oh, just yeah like the Chad post-ironic orb gangster. Like, it's stuff like this. It's, it, like, yeah. See? Orb gang. Yeah. It's good. Anyway, um, I did not, uh, I did not actually see what chat was on about during it, because I had chat closed. I didn't want to be distracted by chat. And, uh, I was very happy to see that when I closed the Zoom call and saw the rest of you, uh, that you weren't making fun of me for, uh, swapping my eye contact around uh, because I never know where to look. I'm used to looking here, and my stream setup is kind of built for me to look this way, but normally on Zoom calls, you look at the camera, which I don't like doing. You know, <laughs> Yeah. Oh, we did? Or your accent? Wait, what accent? Wait, what accent did I do? I thought I was talking really normal. Okay. We were kind of making fun of you. Well, whatever, as long as you enjoyed the conversation. Submissive accent? What? Okay, all right. You people are making shit up. It was an amazing conversation. Uh, one of the... One of the... Um, uh, here, one of the best things I think you guys can see from Marion is this. I'm not going to go over it now because I've already gone over it uh, on stream before, but it was when she went on Dave Rubin. See, she was discounted as kind of like a... Um, kind of like a hippie woo-woo type, and she was brought on Dave Rubin's Rubin Report as a sort of, like, esoteric, edge-left, like, character to to get into. Um, but she actually tore Dave Rubin apart. She, she actually kind of, like, tore him a new one. And the reason for that was because she's actually a human being. So when Dave Rubin started saying really stupid shit, rather than do the normal, like, I'm here to farm clicks, like, I'm going to politely respond stuff. She, I think, at one point, Dave Rubin said something dumb, and Marion Williamson actually gave a genuine look of concern. Yeah, here, Marion Williamson visibly shocked by Dave Rubin's questions. She actually, he said something dumb, and she actually, like, paused, like, what? What? With, like, a sweetie face, and it's like, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, just, <laughs> seemed like she was educating him, yeah. Here, hold on. It's a short video, so I bet it has the clip quickly. Thanks, Okay, Dave. this next story presidential nomination. Jackie, any of the... All about... All of Dave David, I love you. Two right? Gotta get the clip. Gotta get the clip. If you get a, you got to call a minute before, and you know, 120 people are going to get killed. I will tell you what I think he does deserve credit for. Yeah. In terms of Iran, no, it was the president who got who recklessly removed us from the Iran nuclear deal. That is what led up to that. The president taking us out of the Iran nuclear deal, out of a situation that was an international leveraging, where by all indicators, Iran was that we know of, the Iran was complying. So now they've said the other day that they're going to go on and enrich uranium beyond what the agreement called for because we had pulled out. No, I cannot give the president any credit for what's happening with Iran. The fact that he was about to do something so unbelievably reckless. Because let me tell you something, given the size of the Iranian army alone, you think Iraq was a catastrophe? 
nothing compared to what war with Iran would look like. So obviously some hero, we don't know exactly who it was, but we know someone within the higher echelons of either his administration, his national security apparatus, or the military talked him out of it. That we can be very thankful to this person, whoever they were. This is really fun. Oh wait, that wasn't that wasn't the show. Okay, wait, was this the shot clip? That was true though. She sounded really good there, yeah. Um, but wait, was this the clip where she... And sort of... I mean, a couple of times you're referencing the genocide of the Jews to, to slavery. Seems like a little bit of a, a slippery slope there, no? I don't even know how we can say that, actually. And I say that as a Jew. Have you read up much on slavery? Yeah. We're talking abject slavery, Dave. I mean, nobody's in a contest. Nobody has a monopoly on human suffering. This was abject slavery. There's... She comes across as like really, she comes across as really well educated. I, I, for, for a while before I saw the conversation between her and Dave Rubin, I, I, all I knew about her was that like hippie stuff. And I have very little respect for hippies. But then I actually listened to her talk. I was like, oh wait, she's actually pretty smart. There, there's some stuff she said or done that I don't fully agree with, I think. But it goes back like years. So I don't know. She, I, I like her. Yeah. Abject? What does abject mean? Abject, I think abject kind of means like outright, or I think it means like more adhering to its definition. Experienced or present to the maximum degree used with something bad. Yeah, you wouldn't really say something is abject delicious, I guess. Utter or complete. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Twitter broke. I was trying to uh, check DMs right before we went live with Marion. Twitter's completely broken right now. Okay, close that, close that, close this, close that, close that. Okay. Hey guys, thanks. I think that was my favorite interview that we've done on this channel yet. And we've had the channel for like four years. So I'd say that's pretty good. Yeah, that was, that was very nice.